0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider.
1: Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative, featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Alison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton-Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and Tahani. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to slash action.
2: This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Not home nor work, cafes provide a unique third space for people to be private in a public space. Mary White, Professor of Anthropology at Boston University, studies just this, cafes and cafe culture through an ethnographic lens, but in Japan. Her book Coffee Life in Japan, part ethnography, part memoir, traces Japan's cafe society over the past century and a half. Welcome to the show, Mary.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
2: So I read a bit, um, before writing this book, you helped get Cambodian coffee imported to Japan. So can you explain how that um, all came about?
3: How how I got to Japan in the very first place was, um, you know, I was interested in Japan, per se, and I've always been interested in food. But coffee was a, already a way of life for me in 1963 when I first got to Japan. So carrying it with me. I discovered there were uh, three or four cafes per per city block in Japan and it kind of blew my mind because, of course, like many people I assumed that Japan was green tea but uh, actually more coffee is consumed than tea uh, in public spaces in Japan. Hmm. So it really um, it was where I got to know Japan first. Um, Very interesting moment back then.
2: So were you in Boston before Japan?
3: Yeah, um, mostly. I, I actually come from the Midwest, from Minnesota and Chicago, where coffee culture in the 50s was not extremely developed. It was mostly Maxwell House in a can or instant coffee. And, and when I was about two, I remember my father uh, telling me to come into the kitchen and uh and be present when the Maxwell House vacuum seal was broken. <laughs> and I would put my little tiny nose to the to the seal and get the first whoosh of coffee uh, smell. Of course, I wasn't allowed to drink it, but I was pretty much inoculated by that. Mm-hmm. But Boston coffee in the 50s and 60s was, um, you know, we had a coffee house culture, which didn't have much to do with the coffee and much more with the space and, you know, being a sort of pretentious bohemian. Mm -hmm. Um, So the coffee itself wasn't the thing for me until I got to Japan and realized how wonderful the coffee could be.
2: Mm -hmm. And so you got to Japan and you were visiting these various coffee houses, and how did you um, switch from becoming solely a consumer to someone that was helping with the production? Like I was reading that you had helped actually import Colombian coffee um, to Japan.
3: Well, it it was a very long process because for many decades I've been, you know, studying Japan, doing research there, and writing books about Japan. But I never took on coffee, even though that's where I mostly sat most of the time, um, in coffee spaces, um, until really, uh, until this millennium. (laughs) And um, and that meant finding um, a research project that would, uh, get me involved with coffee industry and coffee industry on the micro scale as well as the macro scale. Japan is the third largest importer of coffee in the world. And so when I talk coffee industry, I really mean large scale as well. Um, I, um, At the same time, though, um, I was really interested in education. And some friends invited me along to visit some schools that they were having built in uh, Cambodia. Um, And I got interested. I thought, "Hmm, well, I want to go to Cambodia in any case. And I got to the places way up in the northeast part of Cambodia where they were building the schools and noticed that there were these coffee trees. Um, I'd already been interested in coffee, but... I didn't realize there was coffee in northeastern Cambodia. It had been left by the French colonials and the Vietnamese who had come in. And I thought, well, what about this? What about encouraging these people to grow the coffee, to, to market it, and maybe maybe market it in Japan? So after some years of working on it, um, we did get export, coffee exported from Cambodia to Japan, and that was... That was a really hands-on, literally hands-on project for me. Mm
2: -hmm. And so much of this book was written in a cafe, or many of your previous books are written in cafes?
3: (laughs) Yeah, actually, pretty much everything. (laughs) Um, There's one cafe up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I wrote my undergraduate thesis and I wrote my PhD dissertation and pretty much in the same season I really think there should be a plaque there or something, but yeah I, I, writing in cafes gives you this sense of being private in public which is an aspect of the cafe, it isn't always a social moment, it's sometimes a way of being out there and recognizing that other people are there, but it kind of focuses you just to realize that other people are there and yet you're doing your own project. It, it has a special feeling for me.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, in Boston, I don't know if it's as popular as it is here in New York City, but there's been a lot of co-working spaces opening up and I was wondering if you feel like that's impacted cafe culture or um, kind of amplifies or is capitalizing on that same culture.
3: You know, co-working spaces are really a phenomenon, and I do hope an anthropologist is doing research on them, because how they operate and who uh, uses them or needs them, um, it's a really new population. I frankly don't think the co-working spaces are much about coffee, Um, and yet, of course, there is always coffee, because coffee seems to accompany the kind of work, especially younger people, are doing now. But by the way, in Japan, cafes um, are rarely places where you bring a laptop. You almost, except in Starbucks in Japan, and there are over 1,800 Starbucks in Japan. That's where you see the laptops, but they're mostly uh, foreigners uh, using their laptops in the Starbucks. So as a workspace, the Japanese cafe is really not so much developed. As it is in say America and and in America more than in Europe as well, mm-hmm. where it's much more of a social space. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think there's there's something different going on with a co-working space, which of course implies coffee. But I don't think it's really changing coffee that much.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, can you actually give us an overview of this uh, social history of cafes that you mentioned, especially especially the one in Japan?
3: the social history of the cafe is very interesting. Now, first of all, of course, coffee had to come. Um, And in Japan, coffee came about the same time that it arrived in Europe from, in in that case, from Yemen and Turkey. But in Japan, Portuguese missionaries brought coffee in the 1500s. Um, and, And then again, by the 1600s, by the Dutch traders who brought it Um, And also, of course, the Dutch, who eventually possessed Indonesia, Sumatra, they brought coffee from their own colonial possessions. So you get the coffee coming in, but the idea of a cafe, um, per se, um, really didn't happen until the mid-19th century. In fact, when Japan kind of reopened to the rest of the world in the 1860s, a lot of Japanese officials traveled to Europe and to America to find out what was going on in the modern world. And one young man in the 1870s uh, was sent by his dad to uh, Yale University in New Haven. And he, um, he really didn't do very well at Yale because he loved the coffee houses of New York too much in the 1870s and 80s. So he flunked out of Yale took the idea of the coffee shop back to Japan, eventually, and started Japan's first full-fledged coffee house in 1888. Um, After that, they flourished because of the development of a uh, farming connection for coffee through Japanese farmers going to Brazil to jumpstart the Brazilian coffee economy. It was really the Japanese farmers who put Brazil on the coffee map, and then, indeed, the first chain coffee shops uh, were created in Japan, the first in the world, were created in Japan by 1907 using Brazilian coffee. Mm-hmm. So the the spaces were, you know, developing the coffee as well as coffee developing the spaces. Um, the, the spaces at first were very um, kind of old school, cl- masculine, club-like spaces where big Stuff, leather armchairs, and you know, newspapers on racks, and uh, all sorts of amenities could be had for the very, very low price of a cup of coffee. Um, but these were—they changed as as social history changed. Because uh, eventually, by the 19 teens, uh, women wanted to be in, and so women, both as Waitresses and as customers uh, infused the new cafes as well. And it kept changing as as uh, society and culture changed. Um, that's what cafes do. They they reflect as well as create change.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, I feel like if we fast forward, then the cafe space here in America is so much conflated with a working space or a place to fuel your creativity and vice versa, but in Japan then, um, how are cafes used? And um, You talk about various roles or social roles that people choose cafes for, so I was wondering if you could get into that too.
3: Yeah, I think that there are so many different kinds of cafes in Japan, and some of them are, you know, frequented by writers and artists, and some are created places where craftspeople gather to talk about weaving or, you know, there are just so many different things. Um, Student cafes tend to have cheaper coffee uh, and not so esoteric. Um, And they are, as I say, they're not places where people bring laptops. People bring books, for sure. But um, Wi-Fi is not common in Japanese cafes. So that particular function is, is there only really in Starbucks. Um, but the, uh, the idea of cafes as a place to be social is also there. Um, the idea that a cafe helps you manage your day, since there are so many, um, and since it's so important in Japan to be on time for a meeting, you can calibrate your timing of your meeting, being there exactly on time or a minute before. Um, by getting to a site early and using a local cafe as a time management device. So that's one very small thing that actually um, helps you along the day. Um, It's a place where people um, meet people away from the office or away from the home. Japanese homes are very small and um, people are not usually entertained at home and cafes are a good place to meet your friends or you know, housewives will gather
2: in the morning, that sort of thing. And so as a professor of anthropology writing um, papers and books in cafes, what pushed you to then want to write an ethnography on cafes, and what exactly does an ethnographical treatment of cafes look like? I'm sorry? Hello? Yeah, hi. So... I was saying, so I'm just imagining you working on all your research and...
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, yes, I, I, I've actually... It's very interesting. I just got back from Japan two days ago, and I am writing an, an essay on what's happened since my book was written in coffee in Japan. So, yeah... Um, I'm about to head out to a cafe uh, after talking with you and try to try to figure out. I mean, it's sort of redundant, isn't it? I'm writing about coffee and cafes in cafe a cafe, but um, you, know,
2: you do what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. and so, I'm imagining you working in these spaces and finally seeing yourself in the space and realizing that you wanted to study this seriously and kind of apply your own ethnographic lens to the space that you're constantly inhabiting. So what exactly is an ethnographical treatment of a space? What does it look like? Um, What are you looking to find? What are you looking to learn? Well,
3: what I tell my students is that ethnography is the product of participant observation, the product of being in a space that paying attention to even the smallest detail, details, details that you might not even think are very important at the time, but that turned out to be important. So you use all your senses. Of course, in a coffee shop, you use your sense of smell, and the ambient noises, the, um, the movement of people, the light. Um, you know, I, I visited a blue bottle coffee shop in Kyoto that was really, washed in beautiful light, um, and I thought that was impressive. Um, you, you notice as much as you can and you have to make some sense of it. But to make sense of it, you need a little distance. So we do this sort of immediate observation, and then you pull back and you do the more abstract thinking about it. Anthropology is really the recording of what makes sense in a space. And what makes common sense, of course, is somebody else's common sense. It isn't necessarily your own. Mm-hmm. So you have to be alert to the fact that what the meaning making is locally constructed and isn't necessarily the observer's own meanings. So it's a complicated process but it, it actually comes out of very simple observation.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually love that you mentioned Blue Bottle because um, there are multiple Blue Bottles here in New York City. And though the coffee is fantastic every time, I think what keeps me coming back is the assurance that it's going to be a beautiful space, that it's going to be calming, and that it is washed in beautiful light. And I think there's something to be said about the uniformity of experience that is not necessarily bound to the type of coffee that you're drinking. That's
3: right. Um, And actually, James Freeman, the founder of Blue Bottle, Says that his inspiration came from Japanese coffee shops. Ah. Um, so it is, it's no accident that I i found some similarity uh, in Japan. Um, it's uh, it's very it's very interesting to see what happens to a foreign uh, chain or a foreign entity when it comes to Japan and see what adjustment. Or what kinds of
2: assimilation are uh, involved. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, getting back to the different social functions that um, cafes can hold, I loved this anecdote that you had in the book where um, this one man has a cafe for dating, another cafe for studying, another for his personal enjoyment of this certain brew, and um, 15 to 20 others. And I feel like that's very different than the American version, where which is we really want to be loyal to one spot or really romanticize the neighborhood coffee shop. So did you notice this tension between um, studying cafes in Japan versus your experience of them here in America?
3: Well, I you know, I, I, guess I find myself uh, in America going to some of the same cafes over and over again. Uh, but I do have cafes that I don't go to when I want to be with other people when I'm having a meeting. Um, just because they seem like I'm invading the space with a kind of social noise, which otherwise is a very peaceful, quiet space for meeting. Um, and, you know, and I, I think that, that there are distinctions for me here too that are made um, because of the functionality of the space or because I am known in one space, uh, and then, then I will be social with the owners and the maristas um, and not particularly um, be very quiet there. So, you know, I go to those places to catch up with my barista friends. It, you know, I think, I think it's similar in Japan that um, people will have spaces where they can be anonymous and people have spaces where they can be known. It's sort of like... You know, you want to go to the cheers place because everyone knows your name. That, that sort of feeling in some spaces. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think there's a, a great big... I don't make a big adjustment when I am uh, going to Japan or going here, because just because I've been there so much. And so there are cafes I go to in Japan where they do know me, and I'll be spending the time talking. So if I need to be alone, I go to a space where I'm not known. At, that's, that's
2: the difference for me. So how has coffee as a commercial industry evolved um, in Japan to reflect evolving needs and tastes?
3: As a, as a commercial enterprise? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, the, the individual privately owned cafe is going to be not a very commercially viable concern. You can't expect to make money out of, you know, a one-man cafe. You Very often, those cafes are owned by recent retirees. Um, you know, they're 65, or maybe a husband and wife operation. Um, and they're doing it because they really enjoy being with people and serving a nice cup of coffee to people. So those are not going to be big money makers. Only the chain cafes can really make money, and of course, the coffee there is not going to be as possibly interesting as the coffee in individually
2: owned places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Going to go interesting coffee, and um, you talk about producers that train like dancers to learn um, to create the perfect cup. So I feel like that is maybe one way that. people outside of the Japanese culture and country um, kind of tokenize or reduce Japanese artisans um, as perfectionists and simply um, always perfecting whatever the West has brought them. And I feel like that's really a one-sided statement. So could you talk a bit first about some of the more interesting producers that you have met and what, what um, encourages them to achieve this perfection?
3: Well, the one thing I would say about perfection in Japan, I think a lot of um, outside observers sort of characterize Japan as a perfectionist society, but actually, those Japanese don't believe that you ever achieve perfection. And maybe that's what makes it so good, you know, mm-hmm. that you're always going to be working on it. There's a, a film that seems to... Essentialized Japanese perfectionism in food, and that's called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, and that film, I think, kind of overdoes it. I think it exaggerates the idea that Jiro spends all his time perfecting this one, sushi. But um, I, What I would hear about the, the coffee makers is they, um, they have a very, very personal approach. No two coffee makers are doing it the same way, and there there was a man who died last year at the age of 103 in Tokyo who had this kind of um, rather rigid idea about making the perfect cup of coffee. But um, people sort of, you know, think, oh, well, he was over the top. He do not really need to do it. And by the way, the, um, the classic Japanese coffee is a pour-over. It's not an espresso drink. And that has to do with the idea that, the older idea anyway, that espresso is a drink made with a machine. And the preferred method of making anything in Japan is handmade. So the idea that espresso could be a connoisseur drink was not, it just wasn't in the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, there's one man in Tokyo, who I would say does strive for perfection in espresso because he wants to make it a handmade drink. He does not think that you, tr- you should trust the machine. He has a Marzocco, which a lot of people outside Italy have the Marzocco espresso machine. And what he does, though, is after, after every shot, he draws an espresso shot, and then he will take apart the head. Um, the portafilter, and he will check the, the threading of the screws. He will steam clean every part, put it back together again before he draws the next shot. He cannot draw. His prepared espresso drink is just shot more than ten times before he's exhausted, and that's it for the day. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nuts, you know. Mm-hmm. But he really cares about. Kind of making what he says is I'm making the machine an extension of my arm, and that to him is a a very uh, personal value. Mm-hmm. So d- you've got different people trying different things in coffee, um, and each fiercely independent of everybody else. So um, you know, people say, "So what is Japanese coffee?" I have to say, it depends on who you're talking to, and what shop you're in, and who's who's up there making it. um, It's so various. Um, Mm -hmm. But pour over as I said, um, still is uh, the drink that's preferred um, and does have the most cathode in it. Mm -hmm.
2: I think the um, choice of the pour-over over over the espresso as the ultimate sign or ultimate Platonic ideal of coffee is a perfect example of how Japanese and Western coffee kind of diverge. And so, how did um, I'm guessing this is pretty early on Japanese coffee coffee connoisseurs, both creators and consumers, kind of break past this conflation of um, modernity with the West. Um, Well, you
3: know that that's a very interesting question because, of course, um, they you know what I tell my students is. You cannot conflate Western and modern. There, there are non-Western moderns, and you have to think of it. Um, you have to separate. It. So, McDonald's is is Western, uh, but it is not you know considered the only way to be modern um, by a long shot. I mean, just look at Japanese architecture. Um, it's extremely modern. I mean, in some ways. You know, if you look just at Japan's uses of technology, uh, you have to say Japan may be the most modern country in the world. Um, but the uh, the idea of coffee as a, a an emblem of modernity was true in Japan in uh, the Taisho period from 19, about 1912 to 1926. Uh, coffee was flourishing and people were eager to partake of what they perceived as modernity. But very quickly, coffee stopped being Western and started being Japanese. It is not considered Western at all in Japan now. Um, And so the idea of a modern drink also, I mean, it's no longer a modern drink either, um, because people talk about, you know, their grandfather's coffee and you know, so <laughs> things like, oh, it smells of old chalk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there is a completely different configuration of the modern through coffee uh, now. Um, and Starbucks does not represent that. Uh, blue Bottle might a little bit, but uh, it isn't considered. Um, what, we're not doing something American like this Blue Bottle. We are doing something American by drinking Starbucks, though. So mm. That's an interesting distinction. Mm-hmm.
2: This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shaksbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first american-made petnat cider continues to experiment every year with limited edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit to learn more visit shaksbury.com or follow them on instagram at Shaxbury.
1: are you enjoying this podcast heritage radio network has plenty more my name is korsha wilson and i'm the host of a hungry society here on hrn a hungry society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out Hungry Society, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
2: And we're back. I'm speaking with author Mary White about her book Coffee Life in Japan, about coffee culture and cafe culture. And um, let's actually get into that. How would you dis- make a dis- or How would you explain the two? Are they any different?
3: I, I'm sorry, you've to repeat the
2: question. Sure. Uh, coffee culture versus cafe culture. I feel like it's oh. a very small difference.
3: Yeah. Coffee and cafe, of course, are related. But um, coffee culture has to do with one's own personal taste in coffee and one's own preferences, whereas cafe, cafe culture has to do with place. So, you know, coffee is... Everything. Coffee is global, it's local, and it's personal. And um, so you have all kinds of threads of identity moving around in coffee. Um, you know, your own personal preferences have to do with the coffee, the, the beverage itself. Whereas the cafe is the space you choose, you just deliberate in, or in, you borrow the space in a way you you know, coffee in a good cafe in Japan is rather expensive so you're basically renting a seat in a space that confers its identity on you as well as you on it. So I think that, that it's a good distinction to make between the space and the beverage um, and I think you know, the older cafes in Japan that are called kishaten they are the ones that You know, now that we have, in Japan, a very large population of elderly people, um, and and more than a quarter of the population is over 65, the cafe, those older cafes become something very special for older people. And they become kind of like salons for the older people to gather in. Um, They're not going to go away either. Um, So you've got different sorts of spaces that are called cafes that suit different people in different ways. Um, people do cafe travel in Japan, cafe tourism, which is, you know, you go to different cities and you have coffee maps of that city and you have different kinds of spaces that you choose to visit and check them off your list of you know coffee houses that have meetings uh, or history or just ambience of some kind. So, you know, the cafe is a really important space. And as I said, you know, when you're, when you're in, a, in a country with very, very small apartments and homes, um, the cafe represents a home away from home as well, a place to entertain other people. Um, and that has a very important personal function.
2: Mm-hmm. And so um, let's get back to what you were saying about cafes being or the choice of a cafe being a way that an individual can signify taste or um, perhaps economic status. I feel like similar things were happening with um, the kind of rise and fall or maybe it's still rising of latte art here in America. I'm taking a picture of it and um, putting on on your social media and showing you know, your friends that you went to XYZ and you ordered XYZ and you're having a very private moment in a public space. I was wondering if there is something equivalent happening in Japan or if it's already happened and it's dying out.
3: Well, the, the uses of spaces um, as, yeah, I think you're right, They're as exemplars of your own identity and taste, but it's really important. And yes, yeah, social media enhance that or give you a space in which. Display that, and I think there's sort of paradoxical uh, aspects to that because you're uh, you're displaying in a very public way your own private identity. I think I find that very interesting. Um, so there's a lot of Instagramming of uh, a space where you feel, you know, you are, you know, enjoying your your privacy. <laughs> um, that's a nice contradiction there. Um, but the um, the idea that you um, are part of the creation of that space. You're not just visiting it. Your presence there turn something on the space. Um, people go to sit there, and, and in a sense to be seen as well, even if you don't have a social communication with the other people in the cafe. I think that there's a nice paradox in the private as public
2: in a cafe so yeah cafes as we mentioned um, inhabit this or offer up this unique third space that's not home nor work and allows this privacy publicly and publicly private um, enjoyment and so is it just cafes that hold or offer up this space or are there other spaces that we use in the same way
3: that's a very good question um I, I, I think that there there are few that have that kind of freedom. You know, first of all, you 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 pay for your space in a cafe in some way. Um, but there are public spaces that uh, where you can, you know, like parks. Um, public public parks have the capacity to give a a space that will help help design its use as you use it. Um, in, in Japan, you know, there, people talk about hotel lobbies or train stations. Um, there are such places, um, but they're a little different because they're a little more transient, and if you hang around too long in a hotel lobby, it might get a bit sketchy. Um, mm-hmm. So, Tepe has almost a, a special place as a public space in which to uh, try out new identities, or uh, as as I keep saying, private and public. Um, but I think I think you, especially in a society like Japan, people are looking for such places all, all the time, um, and uh, the um, you know museums, all kinds of public spaces do this. Parks, and especially uh, this past month when I was in Japan, and the weather was great, um, you know, um, the, the outdoor spaces become those spaces, too. Mm-hmm. A park bench, very similar
2: to a cafe seat. Right, so you say cafes um, allow its inhabitants to kind of be free from social norms, and why is that so unique to a cafe space, and what exactly is the cafe providing the individual with, like, some sort of security, or et cetera,
3: et cetera? Yeah. You can be somebody you're not usually. You know, this concept of the third space says, well, your cafe is not your home, it's not your work or school. Uh, And so it's it's a place that is less defined by the roles you conventionally take off. So... You can see yourself in new ways in a cafe uh, where those roles and expectations are not maintained. Nobody's, you know, nobody's seeing you as a worker or a student or a housewife. Um, They're seeing you, if they see you, as a kind of blend. You're there, and you might be interesting to look at, but they don't know anything about you. You can imagine yourself anybody. Uh, in that space, so mm-hmm. I think that that third phase of the cafe operates uh, to reduce the load of role performance that is obviously present in Japan and here. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so um, you've been celebrated by the Japanese government for introducing and translating Japanese life and culture to an American audience, so you are kind of effectively this third-space author or critic. Um, (laughs) You visit Japan annually, if not multiple times a year, and you've written prolifically and established yourself as an authority academically and commercially on Japanese culture. But um, in this 2016 Boston Globe article on culinary appropriation, um, you're quoted saying on... um, Culinary appropriation. This is a new culinary cry. It has created what I call the red guards, who are like um, who patrol food carts in the dining halls, looking at microaggressions on the steam table and asking for trigger warnings in the cafeteria, which I think is a very important, important um, statement. So, can you talk a bit more about this quote, especially as someone who is part of this quote-unquote third um, point of view, and what it means for our future of food media?
3: I'm sorry, there's part of that uh,
2: question that I didn't hear. Um, I don't want to misspoke you or misanswered you, but could you repeat the the core of it? Thank you. Mm -hmm. So as someone who inhabits this third space, how would you maybe prescribe to others learning or studying another culture to do it sensitively Ah. and compassionately and what this means for our future of food?
3: Uh uh-huh. um, Yeah, I think that uh, there's lots and lots of work to be done in such spaces. Um, I I would suggest that another focus I did a little bit uh, is gender in certain spaces, or uh, or in fact uh, uh, diversity. Um, there, uh, these um, are things I looked at a bit. Um, in Japan um, and I think um, those things, the, the representations of public spaces as they're available to or help enhance the lives of different kinds of people would be a really good topic um, in restaurants as well even supermarkets uh, or bodegas so, I, mean, I think all these spaces can reveal something as societies and individuals change.
2: Mm -hmm. And so um, you said you were working on a book now. Um, What is it going to be on and when can we expect to see it?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish it were (laughs) moving along faster. Um, I'm writing, um, I've done research for about four years now on food workers in Japan. All kinds of food workers. From restaurant workers to industrial factory food workers to um, artisanal food workers, and bread makers in Japan. Um, so I have lots of great stories, and I just have to sit down. Now that it's summer and I'm not teaching, uh, this will be, I, I hope to really get a lot of it done this summer. So food workers is the topic, and I'm not sure what angle, above all, I will uh, book out but it's it's really about experience of working in food Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i look forward to reading it thank you so much for joining me today mary
3: thank you i've been this a lot
1: thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you For our freshest content, and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.